Poets as Landscape Painters by Leonora Blanche Lang. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Poets are a fortunate race. The art of rhyming was still lately so far beyond the power of most people that the few who possessed it were looked on with awe and allowed to commit all sorts of crimes unmolested. Breaches of the Decalogue might be urged on the reader, and he only smiled as he murmured poetical license. High treason and sedition might be sought, but as long as they were taught in verse, nobody cared. It is time, however, that moralists and teachers of the exact scientists made a stand at the false statements of poets as landscape painters. How many of us have had our minds fatally corrupted by the astonishing description in Campbell's stirring poem of Thy wild and stormy steep, Elsinore? The imaginative infant instantly figures to itself bare, beetling crags stretching far into a sea that is forever swirling at its base, the foam mingling with the white wings of the circling seabirds, and the picture remains long after he has become aware of the actual facts, that at Elsinore the sound is bordered by a flat green stretch of land, what in Scotland would be called a hoe, that there is no cliff, no seagulls, no nothing." To the end of its life the child harbors a sense of injury towards the inoffensive Elsinore. He feels towards it as grown people feel towards the original of a very flattering portrait, as if the sitter was in some way responsible, and that they would like to be revenged on him if they only got the chance. If the child is conscientious and of a truthful nature, his whole future will be poisoned by Campbell's rash statement concerning Elsinore. He will dread to visit Rome lest the Tiber, instead of tossing his tawny mane, should turn out a blue and tranquil stream. He will shun Mont Blanc for fear that the Arve and Averin, instead of raging at its base, may prove to be in some distant valley. Cashmere will be a sealed book to him, for who is to know if the roses really are bright by the calm Bendemir, or if it is merely the convolvulus or cowslip which flourishes by those waters? Wordsworth is certainly a more trustworthy guide in this important question than most of his rivals, and has less inaccuracy on his conscience. The very qualities which made him a faithful chronicler of Betty Foy and her afflicted offspring led him to be careful and accurate in his descriptions of scenery, and if the plough and harrow are not precisely the first images suggested by the mention of pleasant Teviotdale, but rather the echo of the baaing of many lambs, both plough and harrow are implements by no means unknown to the inhabitants. In his description of the notorious swan on still St. Mary's Loch, Wordsworth is deserving of all praise. Think what a temptation to create, as Scott did, a herd of swans arching their graceful necks and gazing complacently at their reflections in the limpid waters. But no, he was proof against all the blandishments of the muse, and confined himself strictly to the truth, which was that there was one swan and no more on the loch. Why there should be only one swan, and if it is always the same, and when it first came there, 
are questions which the student of natural history may be able to answer. To the uninitiated they are as darkly mysterious as the origin of Prester John, but this swan goes about killing young ducks. In proportion as Wordsworth is to be commended for the retinue and dignity of his attitude towards the swan of St. Mary's Loch, we must severely condemn Scott for his account of the home, whether permanent or temporary, of that interesting bird. Even in Scotland many people have no idea of the existence of such a spot as St. Mary's. While in England it is quite safe to assert that it would never have been heard of at all had it not been honourably mentioned by these two poets. But the children of larger growth, who are impelled by Scott's majestic lines to drive eighteen miles from Selkirk, or nearly as many from Moffat, to visit St. Mary's Silent Lake, will be rather bewildered when, book in hand, they compare the reality with the description in Marmion. Thou knowest it well, nor fen nor sedge pollutes the pure lake's crystal edge. Abrupt and sheer the mountains sink at once upon the level brink, and just a trace of silver sand marks where the water meets the land. Far in the mirror bright and blue each hill's huge outline you may view, shaggy with heath but lonely bare. There is not a single statement in these nine lines which is not open to criticism or even contradiction. The numerous and pretty water-weeds keep themselves well below the surface, serving the double purpose of shelter for the fish and traps for the lines of the fishermen. The mountains, so far from being abrupt and sheer, are round, pudding-shaped lumps of no great height, and perfectly easy of ascent from any part of the shore if the traveller has the mountaineering mania strong upon him. The silver sand turns out to be a streak of windstones only visible when a dry summer has left the shores bare, otherwise the water comes right up to the edge of the grass. As to the brightness and blueness of the mirror, that is a matter of the luck of the particular tourist, though certainly the poet was so far right when he spoke of the reflections. Whether the water be grey or blue, the reflections are equally firm and clear, and no dog could be accounted a fool for mistaking here the shadow for the substance. But when the conscientious explorer turns to look for the huge outline of the objects reflected, he snorts with indignation. The tallest of them does not seem above six hundred feet, and its outline would not disgrace an apple dumpling or a dish cover. Three false statements in as many lines naturally make the humble student of poetry and nature suspicious as to the rest. But he bounds with surprise when he is next asked to look upon the hills as shaggy with heath. This is the crowning insult to his understanding, for however long his sight and keen his eyes, he may sweep the horizon to the end of his life without being able to detect more than one hill with heather on it this is the great drawback to the hills of the south of scotland their shapes are often fine but with few exceptions their green is apt to become monotonous except for the brief space in the autumn when the bracken changes into gold after this nothing matters the thousand rills which flow into the lake the country for scotland is curiously destitute of them and the solitude which is profaned by a horse's hoofs, though not apparently by the baaing of the endless sheep, may pass unnoticed. 
but our faith is shaken it may be true that on occasion known to the poet the lake heaves her broad billows to the shore and that eagles scream around loch skane but perhaps the strangest part of the whole is that these assertions should be quoted in all the local guide-books as if they were literally true yet even a landlord of an inn can see that they are purely fanciful and that St. Mary's and Loch Skane are no more like Scott's pictures than the ladies who sit to me, R.A., resemble his charming portraits. End of Poets as Landscape Painters by Leonora Blanche Lang Read by David Wales